And I said, it's you. What is it? WCBN FM Ann Arbor. This is WCBN FM Ann Ann Arbor. Arbor. Sorry, that was really bad. (laughs) It's the Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I am Amanda Yuli, your summer host. We are taping a program today, June 19th, 2018, um, and we're so fortunate to have Hannah Pittard with us. Welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. Oh, we're glad you're here. Um, so I am Amanda Yuli, sitting in for T. Hetzel this summer on the Living Writers Show, and we have uh, Frank Yuli, our wonderful engineer, running the board today. Um, and Hannah, you're joining us by phone. I am. I'm, I'm in Boston. Oh, you're in Boston. I was going to ask yeah. whether you are in uh, your home of Kentucky, but are you on the road promoting the book? I'm on the road. Um, I've been on the road for about nine days. Uh, I'm in Providence tonight, and then tomorrow I get to go home and do some laundry for one day, and okay. then I'm off again. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a great book tour with a laundry break in the middle. Uh, with a laundry break, and uh, I also got to stay with my sister a little bit in Washington, D.C., and uh, the first thing I did was go down to her washer dryer. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's important. It's important to be clean at, at reading events. <laughs> Um, I'm going to read a little bit uh, from the back of your new novel, Visible Empire. Um, I'm going to read your bio, and then um, let's get to know you a bit better. Um, Hannah Pittard was born in Atlanta. She is professor of English at the University of Kentucky, where she directs the MFA program in creative writing. She is author of four novels. So this is your fourth uh, novel, Visible Empire. Do you... um, would you like to sort of introduce it for our listeners who have not had the pleasure of reading it yet? Absolutely, yeah. So, like you said in the bio, uh, I was born in Atlanta, and I grew up hearing stories of this disaster that happened in Paris in 1962 when a chartered Air France flight crashed on takeoff, and it killed more than 120 of Atlanta's most prominent wealthy art patrons, all of whom were white. Uh, And overnight, the city changed. And obviously, I wasn't born when this crash occurred. My mom was 13, though, and she was living in Atlanta. And my dad was 20 and also living in Atlanta. And so I grew up hearing stories about this disaster. And uh, my book begins with a crash. It is, it's really not about the crash per se, but it begins with a crash. And then it follows a series of fictional characters over the course of the summer and the way that their lives change and intersect and 
as they begin to reconstruct uh, some semblance of normalcy and what their new lives will look like in the wake of this tremendous loss. Um, excellent. You know, one of the things that I loved most about the book is that um, while it could have been, as you said, about that event, the the crash, it was not. It was about all the sort of adjacent ancillary things. I wonder if you could talk about um, that choice in writing the book, sort of how you came to approach it. The sure. The way you did. Yeah, so it's uh, so it's funny. At a reading last night in Boston, uh, a man raised his hand and he said, "You know, I'd read from the first chapter, and in the first chapter, we we the reader get news of the crash, as do um, many of our primary characters." And a man raised his hand and he said, "Most people end with the disaster. Uh, you begin with the disaster." And it was the first time anybody had asked me, but I was really glad because that was uh, definitely intentional. I wanted to, I wanted to talk about the aftermath, not the buildup. Um, I remember in when I was in grad school in a class with Ann Beatty, uh, somebody had workshopped a story wherein this you know beautiful young woman was on a road trip. You know, I'm sure she was looking for her epiphany. We were all Mm -hmm. writing such terrible stories then. (laughs) But she's on a road trip, and at one point, midway through her long drive to nowhere, she's eating a peach, and cut scene, move to the next, you know, movement in the story. And Anne Beattie said about this scene with the peach, she said, you know, nobody eats a peach by hand in a car because it's going to drip down the arm. And that's what we're missing in this scene, this, you know, the impracticality of it. I want to know what it looks like when the juice drips down the hand or she's not actually eating a peach. And I think that wasn't my story, but I learned something from that. And I think what I started becoming interested in at that moment or realized I was already interested in was looking at the unsettling aftermath of small incidents, big incidents. Um, And I've always, all of my writing has always focused on loss and usually abrupt loss and what we do, um, you know, as human beings in the wake of that abrupt loss. Well, you you do it um, beautifully. And as you were saying, there are some very... um, major big changes and big things that happen with the characters um, in the aftermath. And then there are some small, small, beautiful things, too, that are kind of woven together. Um, So have you ever, uh, before this novel, have you written based on a true event in this way? Has a true event inspired your work? So my, my very first novel is, it begins, again, with a loss, a a young girl goes missing. And like this book, it is not about the girl's disappearance, but it's about the the boys who are in school with her and the way that her absence from their lives affects the trajectory of uh, their futures and and how they choose to lead their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was living in Atlanta as a young girl, um, there was a prominent kidnapping case, and uh, it, it was it was always uh, in the back of my mind. I think as a little girl that this was something that was possible, and I didn't base my girl from my novel on the little girl who'd gone missing in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. But I was definitely trying to sort through some 
pretty deeply ingrained childhood fears that came out of knowing about that case. Um, my right. second book is a little bit closer to home with regard to a real incident. Uh, I had just finished my first novel um, when I, when I was on tour for that book, I would show up at readings, and it's a pretty dark little book, and uh, people would come up to me, and this happened fairly regularly, but people would come up to me and they'd say, you're so different than what we thought you'd be like. Your, your book is so dark. You're so full of life. You're so funny. You laugh a lot. Uh, why don't you write something funny? Oh, that's and I've never been a funny writer, but I, wanted, I, I liked this idea of potentially writing a comedy, so I sat down to write what I hoped would be a funny novel. And at about the same time that that happened, my uh, paternal grandfather committed suicide in Atlanta. Oh. And uh, this absolutely affected what I was writing about, what I was thinking about. Um, and that second novel ended up being about a man in Atlanta who shoots himself. And it's, You're talking it's about, about reunion, a young, right? Yeah, I'm talking about reunion. Um, and the, the, the characters are not based on characters in my family, but it was what was on my mind. And I tend to, I think like a lot of writers, I tend to write about the things that I'm obsessing about or the things that confuse me or the things that keep coming to the surface and I'm trying to make sense of. Exactly. I don't know how a writer separates those things, the, the things that it's occupy. Pretty, it's pretty difficult. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if, if you know about this, and I'm, I'm always curious when people are asking me the question about um, how much you write from your own experience. I always wonder, have you read, have you read my essay about divorce in the Swanee Review? But, um, <laughs> I have not. My, oh, okay, great. So my, my third novel um, is about a couple in crisis, and uh, it's called Listen to Me, and it came out two years ago, and at the same time that the book launched, I mean, on the very same day that the book launched, uh, my, my marriage dissolved um, because of my oh. husband's infidelity. And so I was on tour for this book about a couple in crisis, and <laughs> it really took the tour and answering questions on that tour with this brand new knowledge in my mind and also right. going through a divorce while I was promoting the book. Um, and it was a very fast divorce and sudden, uh, but it, it took that interaction with strangers at readings for me to realize how much of my marriage was in that book and uh, that those characters That's kind who of were so unhappy yeah. and so at one another's throats were were very much based on or modeled on my husband and me. But it sounds like that dark, difficult realization was a surprise to you. It doesn't sound like you were spending however long you took writing the book with that awareness that, that you were processing it. I think that by the time the book came out, I was more attuned to it mm -hmm. than when I was writing it. Uh, mm -hmm. My editor certainly probably knew more than I did <laughs> during some of our talks and some of our edits. Right. Uh, at one point, she, I remember she said, you've got to give us something to root for with this couple. Um, and, and I had made a joke like, of course we're rooting for them. You know, it's, this, this is a great couple. And she said, no, they're really unhappy. Um, so there were moments like uh -huh. that along the way where I think people around me were, were more aware of it. And by the time the book came out, I was both completely taken aback by his transgression and also it was it was like a perfect end to a, 
a short story, frankly, you're surprised by it, but if you look closely enough, it's inevitable. It had to right. end that way. It was there. Yeah. And you had, I think, what many would agree is a very rare experience of kind of processing it, it sounds like, on your book tour, which I did. maybe not, I did. <laughs> not what you would have chosen, but it sounds like <laughs> sounds like it worked. I would love to get back to um, the pivotal event or the first event in Visible Empire, uh, the plane crash. Did that can you talk about growing up in Atlanta? It sounds like your parents both were alive when it happened and it had some impact on them. Did did it resonate for you? And it, was this sort of an event that was hanging over your childhood or your consciousness in any meaningful way? Or did it kind of just pop up when you were writing the book years and years later? Oh, gosh, no. It, it, didn't, it certainly didn't pop up. Uh, this... This was a story that loomed large in Atlanta, uh, and, and its legacy loomed large in Atlanta. Um, there, there are monuments and reminders all over the town uh, about this crash, and I think being a child of Atlanta, even a child of the generation that actually witnessed it, um, I was aware of it, and I think my friends were aware of it, that this was something that um, made Atlanta different in many ways. And so it absolutely loomed large. And the stories that my parents told to me when I was little also, I think, played a a really large part in my fascination about this event. And um, I'm sure that many of the stories that I heard were apocryphal. Um, (laughs) But I, I think that a lot of them were probably close to true as well. I, I remember encountering this notion of an adult orphan, um, which is how my parents sometimes talked about some of the people who'd been left behind, these adults who were orphaned. And I found mm-hmm. that I found that idea very unsettling as a little girl, and it made me aware of and worried about my parents' own mortality. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother is, to this day, terrified of flying, as am I, and her fear 100% stems from this crash when she was a little girl, and uh, I believe that she has passed her fear on to me and to my brother and to my sister, and so indirectly, this crash is responsible for my own relationship with flying, which is incredibly uneasy and unsettling. And so I've known known for the longest time that Mm -hmm. this is something that I would want to write about, but I wasn't ready to do the kind of research or to consider as many perspectives as I would need to in order to try to actually capture the you know, the, the scope and the grandeur of a story like this. And I, I think it took having three novels under my belt and a certain sort of confidence. Uh, I think it also, the time that we're living in really resonated with me as a good time to be working on this project. It's incredibly timely. It's the the novel uh, *Visible Empire* is set in 1962, but I feel um, I felt over and over again reading it that it feels like a 2018. Absolutely. Novel. I mean, well, it, it, to me, it feels as though what, what we're seeing every day, uh, if you open up the newspaper, are different forms of privilege that are no longer being taken for granted, and and we see a world around us that is very much changing and changing rapidly. Um, and there's a lot of tension in the world right now and in our country specifically. And I think um, we see that tension certainly in 1962 in Atlanta. 
Absolutely. This is the Living Writers Program. I am Amanda Yuli. Um, we are talking to Hannah Petard, author of Visible Empire. And we're going to take a short music break. Um, and then I want to talk more about Atlanta and the early 60s and the time and place of that novel when we come back. First, we'll hear John Prine. As the cafe was closing on a warm summer night, Kathy was cleaning the spoons. The radio played the hit parade. And I hummed along with the tune. She asked me to change the station. Said the song just drove her insane But it weren't just the music playing It was me she was trying to blame singing Far From Me. And you're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Today our guest via phone is Hannah Petard, author of four novels, including Visible Empire, out this summer. Um, can you tell us why you chose that song? I, uh, there are two lines in that song that break my heart every time I hear it, and one of them is the line about, ain't it funny how an old broken bottle looks just like a diamond ring? Um, and I love... You know, John Prine is, he's a singer-songwriter, and he's such a storyteller, and I think that I get a lot of my um, sensibilities as a writer from his storytelling, and I, I just love the way it hints at uh, what what his intention is in that song. You know, we never get clearly, I am going to the cafe to propose, but we get the <laughs> line about the broken bottle, and then we also get the other, my other favorite line from that song. Um, a question ain't really a question if you know the answer to. Um, yeah. And the question might be, is it over, or will you marry me, or do you love me still? Um, mm. But I, I have always, uh, th- those two lines have always really resonated with me. That's a beautiful song. And it is, um, as we were talking about before, sort of like the... Um the adjacent uh, information. It's it's just enough for the listener or the reader to kind of understand uh, what the character's going through without that direct yeah. um, direct statement. So we were talking before the break a little bit about um, the the time and place in your novel. Um, it's set in 1962 in Atlanta in the aftermath of a plane crash in, in France. And um, I'd love to hear more about, I mean, first of all, one of the questions I had when I was reading it is whether you spoke to or had any readers um, who lived through that time, Um, particularly when I was thinking about your character, Piedmont, who is a young African-American man. He's 19 or 20, I think, in the the book. Um, Mm -hmm. Were you able to talk to anyone to kind of help lend that perspective um, of the time? 
When when I was researching this book, the, the, the first thing I want to say is there is a terrific book of nonfiction that already exists mm-hmm. about this incident. It's called The Explosion at Orly by Anne Abrams. And it was it was really instrumental in researching and considering the different aspects, the different types of characters, the different uh, incidents and historical plot lines going on in Atlanta at the time. Um, and I was I was definitely uh, aware of that book and aware of the fact that a work of nonfiction already existed. And when I began research, um, my father, again, who who was 20 when the crash happened, he volunteered uh, early and often to put me in touch with people mm-hmm. who, um, other people besides himself and my mom who'd been alive for the crash and even some of the adult children who were survivors who are about his age now, mm-hmm. uh, who he, he's still friends with. And I declined um, being in touch with them because I was really nervous about potentially writing a work of nonfiction, and I was nervous about getting to know specific individuals and their histories Mm -hmm. and then feeling the need to be faithful to to their truths and and to the events um, and to their feelings and emotions. And I wanted to write a work of fiction. I very much wanted to write a work of fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, I did have um, a... I, I had a few people read for accuracy's sake. Um, you know, early Bobby Ann Mason read the book, uh, I thought, in order to offer a blurb. Um, and instead, <laughs> we sat down at a Starbucks for about two hours. And it was one of the, it was one of the most careful and thorough readings of anything I've ever written as, that I've had done. She absolutely blew my mind and it was everything from uh, the way that stoplights looked or seat belts on a car to miniskirts didn't exist in 1962 and um, (laughs) it's funny about the miniskirt because my mother said the same thing and I being the kind of stubborn uh, writer and stubborn human being that I am the first thing that I wanted to do was prove them both wrong because I really wanted a miniskirt in the book. I think there is a miniskirt in the book am I right? It's, but it's not called a miniskirt. <laughs> it's very <laughs> short. They won. Um, <laughs> but I found I found a use of the word miniskirt uh-huh. in a British tabloid in like fall of 1961, and I wrote to both Bobby and Mason. I simply told my mom. I said, "Miniskirt. See, you know, see this use of miniskirt in 1961 in this British tabloid." And their the, the response from both of them was. Yeah, but we weren't using that expression. Nobody in Atlanta and, was. Um, so so <laughs> yeah. she she was really uh, instrumental in taking out some of the glaring errors, uh, anachronistic inclusions in the book. Um, but I also asked uh, Rian Emilcar Scott to to read the book. He's a short story writer who I absolutely admire. Um, and... And and I wanted him to specifically, well, to tell me what he thought of the book, but also to tell me what he thought about um, his perspective as an African-American writer today, what he thought of these characters. Uh, Specifically, there are three young black men, and I wanted to know what he thought of them and what I'd uh, gotten right, if anything, and what I'd gotten wrong. And he gave me some really useful feedback that I I took to heart and was really grateful for. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I, one thing that really struck me about what you were just saying is your 
kind of strong reaction against um, the, the idea of writing a nonfiction book. Um, it sounds like you never considered tackling this in that way. You're a novelist. Um, but, you know, what's interesting to me as a reader is I, I felt um, at times the way the novel is structured, it, it feels um, at moments like an oral history. You're sort of getting these perspectives from all sides of this um, tragedy and its aftermath. So I wonder if you could talk about that aspect, the, the, um, the structure of the novel and the perspectives that you brought to it. Sure. When I when I first conceived of the novel, I had a kind of I thought that there might be, you know, Atlanta as a character, the city as a character almost telling this story in in a kind of first person plural, um some some sort of big, very godlike, uh-huh. all-knowing city voice. And uh I I wanted to write a large scope novel, something unlike anything I'd done before about a large community. And uh, what I quickly understood in trying to tackle this story and tackle Atlanta is that communities are made up of individuals. And mm-hmm. I, and so I started looking, at, looking for the individuals who could tell this story from as many different points of view as I thought was necessary to, to bring it to life. And I'm, I've always been interested as a writer uh, and as a person in the ways that different people can look at a single event or they might be participants in a single conversation and they walk away with two very different outcomes or two very different opinions of what went on Mm -hmm. in that meeting or in that conversation or in that mediation or what happened in that event. Um, And again, this, this comes back, I think, a little bit to the relevance today that, uh, you know, we, we have, we have incidents and events that are occurring all over this country, and we have two radically opposed points of view, obviously more than that, but it seems like we're getting increasingly um, about these two very different opposed points of view. Right. Um, so when I was writing it, I, I just started looking for those characters and listening for the voices that that might, uh, you know, show, show Atlanta and its uh, depth and its differences, and the book begins with, for instance, the book begins with uh, Robert Tucker, who's a forty-something newspaper man, and his connection to the crash is that he works in a newspaper, so obviously this would be something that normally he would cover. But he's married to a young woman, somebody who's far too young for him, far too beautiful, um, you know, too privileged. Mm-hmm. Uh, her class is different than his class, which was also very intentional. Um, but he's married to this young woman who is seven months pregnant, and her parents are on the plane when it crashes. And along with her parents is also his mistress, who is another woman who is too young for him, too good for him. And it's a woman that he's uh, spent the spring convincing to go on the trip in order to, you know, distance himself from her. And so when he gets news of the plane crashing, his first thought is of the mistress. His next thought is of his uh, parents-in-law. And, you know, his final thought is of his wife. And this isn't really a spoiler alert because it's how the first chapter ends, but his decision with all of this, uh, you know, catastrophe and loss circling around him, his decision is to leave his wife, um, which is where his journey begins. And then we see him on a sort of downward, downward spiral of self-pity and 
self-indulgence over the course of the summer. Uh, so that's that's just one point of view. And, and he was useful as well because a newspaper man would have um, access to extra information, which is – uh, just a good ploy as a writer to have right. a character who might have access to information that other people don't have access to. And then another one of the characters is his wife, who, when we meet her, uh, which is not necessarily right away in the book, it takes a little time for us to meet her and to get her account of things, but when we meet her, she has she's not only been left by her husband, she's not only found out that her uh, parents have died, her, her pregnancy is also in trouble, and she's found out that her parents left her penniless, that all of the money that she thought she was going to inherit, they'd squandered um, a long time ago, and they'd been living on credit and cons. And so mm-hmm. she's, she's left bereft in a completely different way. And, a few ways, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so, that, so that ultimately, uh, when her husband leaves her, we, we, again, we don't find this out until later, but when her husband leaves her, that's, that's the smallest of her problems. That's really <laughs> the least of her worries. She is about to try to navigate 1962 as a single woman with a baby and with no money, having no understanding how the working world works. Um, and so those are just two perspectives. Yeah. But then there, there's also Piedmont Dobbs, who is a 19-year-old African-American who, in 1961, had applied along with 131 other people. Again, he is fictitious, but the, the details of the application process are not. Uh, in 1961, in Atlanta, a call went out for juniors, um, African-American juniors, to apply to integrate the public school system. And 132 people applied, 10 were chosen, ultimately only nine matriculated, but 10 were chosen. And when I, when I encountered that fact, that number, that statistic, my first thought was, what must it have been like to have been one of the 122 who right. weren't chosen? And right. I thought that must have been devastating. And to be so young and to already have such a monumental um, devastation to not have been chosen, um, that, that seemed like something worth writing about. And then I imagined, because it is it's a work of fiction and it's a work mm-hmm. of imagination, but I tried to imagine what would it have been like to have had this terrific personal devastation to not have been chosen if, if you really wanted to be chosen to help integrate, if you thought that this was the beginning of your tra- trajectory as a leader and a voice of your community, if you had this disappointment and then nearly a year later to the day you're watching television at an all-white establishment where you're mopping the floors and you the first thing you see is the mayor saying, this is Atlanta's greatest tragedy, what might that have been like? And so Piedmont Mm -hmm. Dobbs is another character whose perspective, um, you know, I attempt to, to tell. Uh, and there, there are a few others as well, some, some closer, some farther from their connections to the crash, but, you know, I'm hoping just to, to show the many different layers and the different, um, points of view that might have been bubbling about in Atlanta at the time. And all of the characters are experiencing a loss or an absence, um, as you were saying with uh, your other novels as well. Uh, loss necessitates change. It's, uh, it's, it's just a fact, and it's what, um, 
it's what I've experienced in, in my own life. The, mm-hmm. the moments where I change the most as a person, as an individual, but, you know, actually make great changes either to my lifestyle, to the choices I make, um, to my personality, it is when I have lost something, usually a person who is close to me. And mm-hmm. as a writer, I think... I'm always trying to, I'm, I'm just trying to sort that out, what it means, and to, and to see the way that loss works on other people who aren't me, to see the way that we as individuals uh, navigate the experience of an absence differently and, and where there's overlap, because I'm always interested in where there's overlap. I think that's, um, that's where empathy comes from, that overlap in experiences. So I'm, I'm constantly trying to look for that in fiction. This is the Living Writers Show. I'm Amanda Uli, your host on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We're going to take a quick music break with Leonard Cohen, and then we'll be back with Hannah Pittard, who's author of Visible Empire. Thanks for joining us today. It's four in the morning, the end of December I'm writing you now just to see if you're better New York is cold, but I like where I'm living There's music on Clinton Street all through the evening I hear that you're building your little house deep in the desert you're living for nothing now I hope you're keeping some kind of record yes and Jane came by with a lock of your hair She said that you gave it to her That night That was Leonard Cohen, and this is the Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. We are talking to Hannah Pittard about Visible Empire and her other works of fiction. Um, Thanks again for joining us, Hannah. No, thank you for having me. I'm having a blast. Oh, great. Me too. Um, You know, before the break, we were talking about um, the different perspectives in the novel and your different characters. I would like to back up a little bit and have you talk, if you would, about um, the epigraphs on the novel. There are four, two two in particular. Um, I wonder if you, would you mind even just reading those? Oh, absolutely. Either either Um, the two or the four? I'm, I'm guessing that the two that you're talking about are the second and the third. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll read it all for... Okay. Um, the very first one comes from an article in the New York Times published the day after the crash, and it's this. It was the worst disaster involving a single airplane in the history of aviation. And the second comes from Mayor Ivan Allen. Atlanta has suffered her greatest tragedy and loss. And the third comes from Malcolm X at the Ronald Stokes protest in Los Angeles, Many people have been asking, well, what are you going to do? 
And since we know that the man is tracking us down day by day to try and find out what we're going to do, so he'll have some excuse to put us behind his bars. We call on our God. He gets rid of 120 of them in one whop. And we hope that every day another plane falls out of the sky. And then the final one is, again, from the New York Times the day after the crash. This thing is so overwhelming, said a man who had lost two of his loved ones, that I can't feel anything. I guess it will hit me tomorrow. Thank you for reading this. Yeah. I think that's such a striking way uh, and tone for the book to start off uh, with, uh, because we really see, uh, for instance, how, how the mayor of Atlanta is viewing the tragedy, uh, which is with... Um, great reverence and loss. And then we see Malcolm X with a totally different perspective. Can you speak to with that? A, yeah, with a totally different perspective. Um, and this, this gets back to what I alluded to earlier, um, different perspectives, a single in- incident, radically opposed uh, perspectives after a single incident. And when I encountered these two quotations, when I found them, it was on the same day in the library with about four or five hours between. And the first I found was Mayor Ivan Allen's and the second one was Malcolm X's. And, um, you know, I found the disparity between them rather jaw dropping. And uh, I knew, I knew that I had to put them side by side on the page. And uh, I think that, I think that it asks the reader, um, you know, really interesting questions about priorities and privilege and points of view and who we're listening to when we're when we're listening to um you know criticism or uh commentary about events that are occurring today you know what's really interesting about these these two different quotations is that um Martin Luther King came out immediately after Malcolm X had said what he said and disavowed it. In fact, uh-huh. Harry Belafonte uh, had been in town during the, t- during the time of the crash in Atlanta and was refused service at an all-white establishment. And uh, Malcolm X had arranged a protest that when news of the crash came, he canceled the protest out of respect for the lives mm-hmm. lost. And so even within the African-American community, you see these two very powerful, prominent leaders disagreeing about how to respond to this large-scale and unexpected death. Um, But Malcolm X was mad, and I think he had a reason to be mad. Uh, we, we, We were in the midst of, you know, several eras of legalized racism, and we had a mayor saying that this incident that killed 121 white Atlantans was the city's greatest tragedy. It was absolutely a tragedy. It was not the city's greatest tragedy. And um, I think that what Malcolm X was trying to point out was the absurdity of his comment. And and again, with those... Um those two perspectives, I think that's where the reader begins to really see all of the connection to what's happening in our world today. Absolutely. I mean, that's certainly my, that is certainly my hope. I think that I've said this before, and I'm going to say it a million more times um, before the summer is out, but I think that good, good fiction invites the readers to ask good questions. And I hope that the epigraph page alone uh, does just that. And, and I will say one of the reasons that I wanted to read all of the quotations at the beginning is in part because of that last one, which is not nearly as 
dramatic or jaw-dropping as Ivan Allen's and Malcolm X's, especially mm-hmm. juxtaposed side by side. But that last one, this man who has lost two people to this plane crash, um, this thing is so overwhelming that I can't feel anything. I guess it will hit me tomorrow. I think it's such a perfect distillation of the way that at least I have encountered grief and loss, that Mm -hmm. it's a purgatory where we know that we will never get back what's gone. And we also know that there's more pain ahead when it finally settles in. And now we just wait. We just wait for the inevitable to hit us. And I don't think I've ever read something so straightforward and, um, gritty and raw and and beautiful Mm -hmm. at the same time. And I very much wanted that to be the last epigraph before people begin the book, because again, it's, you know, it's not so much about the crash as it is about the people who uh, navigate their lives in the wake of the crash. And it does leave the reader wondering, in the case of the this person quoted in the New York Times, um, if it did hit him tomorrow or if it hit him one month later or for the rest of his life and and how it did. And that's certainly what uh, Visible Empire makes us think about. I, I do think um, that, that that quote is part of what informed my take on uh, the character that's Ivan Allen in in the book. You know, Ivan Allen is the one historical character who I really do appropriate in some ways, and I use him in order to uh, incorporate certain historical facts and elements through these very dialogue-heavy chapters with his wife. And it's, it's Ivan Allen who, because he's tasked with moving the city forward and and moving them past this moment of grief and loss, uh, I I don't allow him to feel the effects of the absence of his friends because the mayor knew almost everyone on the plane, if not everyone on the plane. And, And instead of being allowed to really understand and deal with that personal loss, he has to deal with the political one, the large-scale one. And so I was thinking of him in some ways uh, when, or I was thinking of this quote when I was writing him and, uh, and, and delaying and delaying the moment when it does hit him, and it does finally hit him. That is, that's the trajectory of his storyline. But um, these, it's, it's interesting the way that research does really inform a creative project. Certainly. Do you want to speak a little bit about um, the very haunting title of the book? Absolutely. Uh, so <clears throat> Invisible Empire um, is the, the full name of the KKK is the Invisible Empire of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And uh, when I was working on this book, um, I was working on a document that was called Atlanta 1962. And mm-hmm. Somewhere midway through the editing process, the title Atlanta 1962 was taken away from me. And it was a title that I was pretty attached to. I liked how straightforward it was. I liked that it told us where and when, mm-hmm. uh, but it was taken away from me. And um, another one was proposed. And the name that was proposed was Invisible Empire. And when I heard that name, I immediately objected. Uh, I did not. I did not like the idea of calling a book that is not about the Ku Klux Klan, and this book is not about the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. I thought that it was uh, absolutely irresponsible to 
to consider that title. And um, I was given about 48 hours to come up with a replacement title that um, would be acceptable. And uh, with the help of some colleagues who I, whose opinion I, I really value, um, we brainstormed throughout the weekend and Visible Empire was suggested. And I was so grateful that it was suggested because the minute I heard it, I knew that it was right. And I knew that it it really pointed at and captured precisely that tension in, in perspective that mm-hmm. those two quotes that we were just talking about um, allude to. And, and I, was, I, was, I was grateful for it because, you know, if you, if you, if you think about Atlanta in 1962, you think about um, the world not paying attention to the South's treatment of African Americans and widespread legalized racism still is the norm and all of a sudden 121 white people die and the world is watching we have mm-hmm. presidents from you know all over the world calling our mayor apologizing saying they're so sorry for our loss we have the president calling saying he's so sorry for our loss france sends us a rodan they loan us whistler's mother uh and i loved the idea again of a title that would allow readers to ask questions and my question with the title is well what do we what do we do with power that we can see but we choose to ignore or not to question simply because it's so ingrained in our way of thinking well when you call something visible it it implies that there's something invisible that's that's lurking um and certainly there is absolutely Um, yeah it's a genius title well um i think we should take a short music break again. Here's some Lucinda Williams, um, and then we'll come back and we'll talk some more to Hannah Pittard, author of Visible Empire. This is the Living Writer Show. Sylvia was working as a waitress in Beaumont. She said, I'm moving away. I'm going to get. That was Lucinda Williams here on the Living Writer Show, WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, I'm Amanda Yuli, your host for the summer, and we're talking to Hannah Pittard about Visible Empire. Um, thanks for choosing Lucinda Williams for us. <laughs> thank you, thank you for playing her. There's a, there's totally a theme, right, to these songs. I mean, they're all singer songwriters, and um, 
they're all storytellers. I just, and I love, I love that song so much. It's from her eponymous album. I think it was her first album. Mm -hmm. And there's just something so gritty and beautiful. And, you know, it's, it's like that early young passion that you have um, before bills and life and years wear it out of you. I mean, she just wants to go and dance. Uh, I I love that song. Um, So Hannah, I took a a spin through um, some of your other work, uh, other than Visible Empire, your other novels, uh, when I was preparing for this. And a few, there were a few key things that I realized I kind of remember about your books, and I wanted to ask you about them. Uh, One is money. Um, I think, you know, when I read um, Reunion, one of the lasting images and and sort of feelings I had was sort of urgency about the main character's um, money situation. And -hmm. I think money plays, uh, you know, money is power in so many ways, but money plays into this new novel, Visible Empire, in so many interesting ways. Could you speak to that a little bit about about money? Sure. Yeah. So uh, Reunion was a, was a really interesting book to write when I, when I finished that book, um, in its first iteration, money didn't exist. Um, and I sent it, I sent it to my editor and she, you know, she bought it, um, Mm -hmm. which was great, but she said, it's not finished. You have some work to do. There's something missing. I don't know what it is. And so then I sent it to a friend of mine who'd been in grad school with me and who knew my, my family and my family situation pretty well. And, uh, who knew me pretty well. And I knew her very well as well. I just said, well, a million times, Uh, (laughs) but I gave it to her to read. And she said, I know what's missing. And I said, what? And she said, money. And I couldn't believe how well she had deduced that because she was right. Um, I was working on the novel. I was in tremendous debt. Uh, The numbers in that book of the the character, the narrator, Kate, those those numbers that she gives, there's a chapter where she breaks down her school loans, her bills, her back taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that monthly number is mine. Uh-huh. And was mine uh-huh. when I was working on the book. And it was an amazingly easy task going back through and imbuing each chapter with the tension of money. Um, you know, I, I said earlier, those characters, those siblings are not based on my siblings, and yet there is there is certainly a family dynamic. We're very, very close, as these siblings are very close, uh, and I, I think that close siblings can often um, be your best friends and your worst enemies because they, they know your weaknesses and they know your vulnerabilities, yeah. and the book is dedicated to my brother and my sister, mm-hmm. uh, and, and in many ways, the the book is a bit of a, a love letter to them and, and a thank you for the millions of times that they bailed me out financially <laughs> when I when I needed help. You know, ultimately mm-hmm. I got myself out of that debt all on my own. Um, but I was when I was working on that book, I, I felt like a mercenary and uh, <laughs> just just not not like an artist, but somebody who just needed to write a book in order to help pay some bills. And so money was uh, something that was very for, forefront in the mind, along with the suicide that I mentioned earlier. Um, 
but it's also something that's been on my mind since I was a little girl in Atlanta. You know, I grew up in a very affluent community surrounded by really affluent people, and it wasn't until I was in, um, I'd say my late teens, maybe even my early 20s, when my father declared bankruptcy, that I realized that uh, we, my family, we weren't nearly as affluent as the people that I'd grown up with. There were there was money being spent and debt being accrued, money that didn't exist, and, and debt being accrued mm-hmm. um, all, all throughout my childhood. And so there, there was the pretense of money and the performance of money. And uh, because of that, I was never really taught how to, um, you know, handle money. And I didn't mm-hmm. know how debt worked, and I didn't know, uh, you know, the value of anything. And I, I really had to figure that out on my own um, after incurring, you know, all by myself, a, a really absurd amount of credit card debt uh, just out of college. And um, so, so money has been something that I've thought a lot about, the performance of it, the reality of it, uh, the power of it. You know, I've, I'm not the only person to have heard or to have uttered the idea of, you know, actually money can buy happiness, or if it can't buy happiness, it can buy, like, uh, the ability to sleep at night. Yep. Um, <laughs> So having once once you've been uh, paying off fifty thousand dollars worth of credit card debt, I think that the idea of money can't buy happiness is is just a skewed notion. Um, and so so Visible Empire uh, tackles that again, uh, looking at privilege, looking at the way that people travel through life differently if they're paying attention to the cost of a banana or they're able to fill a briefcase with a certain amount of cash and go buy an airplane on a whim at five in the morning. It, it all comes back to perspective and the way that you negotiate a day with, you know, if you've got $10 million in your bank account versus $10 in your bank account right. is necessarily different. And yet we're all we're all alive and we're all sharing this planet together. And isn't that just such a strange, uh, you know, fit of fate somehow. Um, so it's, it's something that I'm, I, I think about a lot and, uh, and I'm very aware that right now I, I am in a very comfortable position and having been in extreme debt, having watched my father go through bankruptcy where I am fortunate is that I don't take it for granted for a second, um, right. the, the comfort that I, that I am lucky enough to be experiencing. Right. Um, you know, you mentioned something in your last answer, which was the other key thing that I noted in your book, which is about siblings. Um, and so these relationships that, that you paint, I, I saw it, um, I've seen it in, in many of your books, I guess. Um, but the the sibling relationship in Visible Empire is so fascinating um, between Anastasia and her brother, who come. And uh, do you want to speak to that a little bit? How has your what did, what did you say a moment ago? Siblings can be your best friends and your your worst best friend and your worst enemy. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's an unusual you know, I'm, yeah. I I went through as a as a little girl in Atlanta. I went through a 10-year custody battle, and I was the youngest of three children. And I think that um, having a brother and a sister who were also going through the same experience really saved my life. Um, yeah. I, 
I can't imagine not having two people to share Mm-hmm. that experience and that perspective. It's its one thing to, to have a partner um, and to be able to tell that partner about your history and about your life experiences. But when you're experiencing trauma as a child, it's something else to be an adult and be able to, to call a sister or a brother and, and, and just have it validated, uh, mm-hmm. your, your memory of something or your explanation for how you are today because of something that all three of you experienced 30 years ago. Um, not looking for excuses, but just looking for these, these bonds that are not about mm-hmm. blood, in my opinion, but about um, shared experience. Shared you know, experience, I ultimately. Yeah. Blood doesn't matter. Siblings, I think, are made siblings by being in the same house and being raised by the same people. But um, so I I have I have a a really strong attachment to my brother and my sister, and I'm grateful for them, even as they drive me crazy on a daily and sometimes (laughs) hourly basis. But I cannot imagine life without them. And um, and so it's true. Really, every book except for Listen to Me, the third novel, Uh uh, siblings feature very strongly. There are there are even in the in the first book, there's the girl who goes missing, and then there's the little sister who right. obsesses about her. And I think it's the first or the second Halloween after she goes missing for Halloween, she dresses up as her sister, and the adults are just horrified. <laughs> right, um, right. But even that. within that novel, there's a second set of siblings. Uh, th- this little girl, uh, these two little girl children um, <laughs> who who sort of exist peripherally and and they're very much based on my nieces who are four years apart which is the distance between me and my sister we're uh-huh. four years apart as well and I, I I always try to work in my nieces where I can because they just it's 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 something very special to get to see another set of siblings right. uh, come to life in in the same sort of close way that we did but they show up again. Siblings show up again. Two different sets in Visible Empire. I thought you might be alluding to uh, Jeannie and her brother Claude, um, no, but that, Anastasia that and yeah. and Skyler have a very particular and strange relationship. They are fraternal twins who are abandoned uh, very young in life, and um, they grow up. I think each other's closest allies and worst enemy and uh and then there's a sort of foil set of siblings towards the back half of the novel there's an older woman Jeannie, whose brother has died on the airplane and we get to see a little bit of an origin story um from atlanta i think in 1912 uh, we get to see Jeannie and her brother who's dead by the time that we're reading about it but we get to see them as small children uh, playing in on the family, you know, homestead where you know the, on this land that eventually makes the family millions and millions, if not billions, of dollars when they sell it to the city. Uh, but we get to see just like a hint of what might account for Jeannie Case becoming the somewhat reprehensible character that she becomes <laughs> later in life. I like to give, yeah. I like wherever possible if I have a sort of malevolent or evil character. I like to afford them some amount of generosity by providing an origin story that might account for the way they are later in life. Right. Now, the sibling relationships are rendered so beautifully in your novels. Um, So it's clear that those are important to you and meaningful to you. Do you, Uh, do you have siblings? I do. I have a brother okay. who, who lives in I Boston, know. where you are right oh, now. Oh, really? Oh, great. <laughs> yes. Are you guys close? <laughs> Pretty close. Yeah. 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 Nice. 
Um, so we are nearly out of time, um, and I feel like I have much more I would love to ask you, Hannah, but we'll have to save that for another appearance on The Living Writers Show. Um, well, that sounds like a plan. All right, let's do that. Maybe we can close very quickly. I, I like to ask our guests what they are reading right now. Do you have any books that you're reading? Absolutely. So I have two books. Um, when I'm when I'm on tour and when I'm not writing, it is absolutely essential to me that that I'm reading. And so I'm reading two books currently. One is Stephen King's The Outsider. Okay, heard about uh, that one. Oh gosh, it's just terrific. Um, and then the other one is Terry Jones, Terry Jones, An American Marriage, and I'm <sighs> nearly finished with it. And uh, they are both they're both stunning, and for completely different reasons. And I, I recommend them wholeheartedly. Noted. One was on my list and now they both are. So thank you. (laughs) Well, thank Um, you. Yes. Thanks for joining us today. It's been lovely to talk with you about Visible Empire. Um, This is the Living Writer Show. We're going to close out with uh, also chosen by Hannah Frank Sinatra. And uh, now the end is near and so I face The final curtain My friend I'll say it clear I'll state my case Of which I'm certain I've lived A life that's full I traveled each And every highway And more Much more than this, I did it my way. Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do, saw it through. Without exemption I planned Each chartered course Each careful step Along the byway And more Much more than this I did it My way Yes, there were Thank you.